I don't know how to change it. It's more of just a core philosophy. It really is the child first. You know, what is the best for the child? I mean, I think we, we make decisions. We make all kinds of decisions based on they're not good at this. Family's not good enough. This isn't good enough. This isn't what is best for the child. And I think that that child-centered, it gets lost real fast. The child gets lost real fast. All right, grab your cup of coffee, cup of tea, and settle down for another episode of the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe. At the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe, we do know that one caring adult can really change life for a vulnerable child. That's why foster parents are one of the most critical components of the foster care system. Foster parents open their homes and their hearts and provide hope and love to children who need it the most. They are the guides that every superhero needs in order to be great. That's why foster parents need better support and more exceptional resources. For far too long, foster parents have been made to feel like extras in a movie, when in reality, they're more like the co-stars. Here at the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe, this is where all those guides come to meet and become better informed, better prepared, and more encouraged to continue to serve on the front lines of the child welfare system. I'm your host, Hakeem Morgan. I spent eight years of my life navigating the foster care system, and that experience really inspired me to become a change maker for vulnerable children as well as an advocate for foster parents. Through this podcast, I hope to inspire the next generation of foster parents and foster children to be great. In fact, here at the Mosaic Foster Parents Cafe, our mission is to inspire and nurture the spirit of serving children, one family, one foster parent, and one episode at a time. Thank you so much for listening. We have a very special guest as well as a very special episode here today. We are still celebrating our heroes of foster care. That's extraordinary individuals who are going above and beyond, committing themselves to the child welfare system, to serving children and families, and doing an exceptional job of serving children and families. We have our hero. Ms. Shannon Schumacher here on the show today. She is the CEO and president of the Villages of Indiana, which is an outstanding, very exceptional organization here in the Indiana, Indianapolis area. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, team. Thank you for doing this. What a what a wonderful community treasure that you are for foster parents. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. This is a cafe. And so we do want to start the show off with our cup check. We like to know what our guests like to drink. When you go into the cafe, what is it that you typically order? And today, what's what's in your cup uh, this morning? Yeah, no. So I am not a coffee drinker. I gave up coffee years ago because it made me anxious and sweaty and hyper. So I, when I go to a cafe, I order chai tea latte, ah. which is usually about uh, $14. So it's not the cheapest thing on the menu, but that is what I order. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Chai tea latte, is that what you said? Chai tea latte. Chai and it is surprisingly tea. in just about every single cafe. It sounds a little exotic, but it's really a standard on the menu these days. All right. All right. Well, I got to, you know what? I think I've had some chai tea. That's not a go to, but um, I got to try it. <laughs> I gotta try it. So I am a. I'm gonna do my cup check. I'm I'm a Starbucks guy. I gotta. I admit that. And uh, so I'm one of those people that kind of go to Starbucks on a pretty regular basis. I t- I have some typical orders, and and usually what I order is a oat milk shaken espresso. And but but that's not what I'm drinking today. I, I have a slight variation on the oat milk shaken espresso because they didn't have oat milk at my uh, Starbucks this morning, so uh-huh. I had to get an almond milk. Shaking espresso, but that's what I'm sipping on this morning. <laughs> that's pretty precise. Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> it's actually the name is I, I've had to practice ordering order my, my drink at Starbucks. Man, they, they, they make you work. They make you learn different languages. and <laughs> Right. So I, ha- I have uh, quite an experience when I'm ordering my, my, my um, drink at, at Starbucks. So that's our cup check. Well, thank you so much for participating in that. Our next section is our icebreaker section. So we have, actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you are one of our heroes of foster care. Have you thought about a superhero that you admire that you might want to embody? If you were a comic book character, do you know what superhero you would want to be? Well, that's a good question. I would just have to say uh, Superwoman, just because I grew up in the 70s and Superwoman was one of the standards. Of what I would watch, and I love the, uh, the 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 bracelets that can block the bullets. That's right. And I tell you, I tell you <laughs> some days in the child welfare business in social services, that is exactly what you do most right. of the day. That, that's awesome. Okay, well, how about this? If you could describe your passion and skills for serving children and families as a superpower, how would you describe it as a superpower? And What's the secret sauce to your your success? How do you keep going? Yeah, no, that's a good one. So I would just have to say when I interact with most people, I can really think about and connect with what it might be like to be in their shoes. And I think about this a lot because I'm not really sure how that happened. I'm a spiritual person and I, I do believe that that God gave me this gift. And I remember actually, particularly when I first realized it, and um, I tell this story often, but I grew up in rural Indiana and I went to, this is in the 70s, mind you, showing my age here. But I remember in second grade, I went to a big consolidated elementary school. And so we had five elementary school, we had five second grade classes. And I remember there was a little girl in our class. She was very, very thin. She would come to school with um, dirty clothes, sometimes the same clothes over and over again without a coat. Her hair was matted. She um, smelled bad and she couldn't sit still in class. And I remember my second grade teacher is with her, her fingers pressed upon her upper arm and she would just fling her around and sit her back down. And I remember in my little seven year old brain, I remember thinking, this is not her fault. Mm. And I knew that in my little brain. And I, I just remember thinking from that point on, I have to help and whatever I can do to help. And I was kind of at that point holding a um, person that would stand up 
to the children anywhere that I would see that were being um, excluded. I was the girl in the lunchroom with like, come on over, sit here. And so, and for whatever reason, I had enough kind of social clout to be able to pull that off. And I didn't care if other people made fun of me in any way. And, you know, it's really interesting because this was in rural Decatur County, Indiana. And when, yeah, so, and again, 1978, which is kind of an interesting date too, because that's when the villages started. When I actually, when I was interviewing for this position at the villages and I found out that in Decatur County, the villages has a prevent child abuse council and we have a healthy families program mm. in Decatur County. And I just, I was overwhelmed with gratitude and I thought there's help now. Yeah. There is help now. Villages is there now. I, I think it's a superpower. It's my secret sauce clearly. And so everything that I do, I think of goes back to that. Empathy, and man. I, so important. Yes. It's so yes. important. So how about this? Could you tell us the story about how you got involved in the child welfare system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can. So I was working on my master's of social work and with, through your master's of social work, you have to do a practicum and a practicum is basically you work at a social service agency for a semester or a year. And so this is in 1998. So back in history. So I chose to do my practicum at the villages. This was a time when there were a lot of group homes and the villages, they weren't doing as much foster care. But I remember I was doing a supervised visitation. So as an intern, they let me do supervised visitation, which means the children who had been removed from their family, it was having the parent, the biological parent doing a supervision of the visitation. And so I remember there were three children and they were about 15, 10 and nine or something. And I remember prepping those kids about, okay, mom's going to come. What are we going to do? And I remember they'd ask questions like, what should I wear? And what should I say? And clearly they were nervous and they wanted to have the best impression. They wanted mom to like them, all of that. And so mom didn't show up. And so then I had to deal with like children who were just distraught and angry and then she didn't show up again. And so I said, I'm going to just go pick mom up. I'm just going to, mom was having transportation problems and I'd be darned if I was going to to have to go through this with these children again. And I drove and I picked her up and I, she got in my car and she was this tiny, very, very young, younger than me, nearly woman. And she just said, I know I'm a terrible mother. My children hate me. I, I don't know what to say. What should I wear? What should I talk to them about? I mean, it would basically what she was saying was mirroring what the children's, the children were um, afraid of and worried about. And at that point, when I had her in my car, I just thought, we have to help her too. We can't just separately, you know, serve these children and serve these parents. And then basically from that point on, everything that I did in my career had to do with what they call two gen, <laughs> two generation work. So it's like now it's the uh, big C. So right. it's two, they call it two gen and there's lots of research on it. And it's basically saying you can't really serve in social services with any kind of work that you're doing with just the parent or just the children. And so everything I've done from that point on, 19... 98 has really been around two-generation work. And so I think just that realizing 
the dynamics of just families and children and just knowing that we weren't doing the best job we could do in social services unless we were incorporating families. Awesome. Right. So I did want to spend some time focusing on older youth services. Older youth services is a, is a passion of mine. It sounds like it's a passion of the villages as well. It's yeah. a top top three uh, service uh, that you guys offer. And what what is the greatest or what are the greatest challenges you face with serving the older youth population? Yeah, you know, so the older youth services are 100% voluntary for the most part. And so sometimes they're just like, mm, I'm good. I don't really need anything. And so that's the part that I, you know, I get it. We have, we definitely want to give them choice. We can force them into the programs, but I just, I feel like, oh, so we're always doing everything we possibly can. And one of the things we do very, very well is engage the older youth. And so keep them engaged. And it's really trying to figure out what, it's really knowing your youth, like the, knowing the youth that we serve. So we have a case manager that has a caseload and they're assigned to individual youth and just getting to know them, what's important to them. You know, what, how can we help, you know, with what are they, there's a big assessment trying to figure out what areas do they want help with? We can help with anything. I mean, education is a big piece. That's a huge focus. Housing, um, just things like, you know, how do I get my driver's license? Or, you know, how do I, how do I sign a lease? How do I fill out an application to get employment? Absolutely. So, so really walking as there, we're just like mentors. I mean, we're, really helping them and engaging with them. Um, so that's that's a big piece of it. So that engagement, always trying to keep them engaged. What have you found to have the greatest impact on positive outcomes for older youth? Yeah, you know, it goes back to uh, the engagement. So we, we, we get a lot of feedback from our, the youth that we serve. And um, one of, a couple of things that they, you know, surveys and focus groups, and they talk about being non-judgmental. That our staff, I mean, it's basically what is the behavior of our staff that it's building trust. Uh, it's, it's building trust with um, with the their case manager, which is our staff who works with them. Being reliable, you know, being there for them when they have a crisis, uh, walking with them, not telling them what to do. Uh, you know, so those are those are the those are the it's really the secret sauce to, to working with the older youth is listening to them. And, um, yeah, I mean, they've had so many people in their life telling them what to do and what not to do and which direction to walk and what. And so this is really an opportunity to empower them. Awesome. And, you know, and sometimes they don't make the best choices, you know, and that's okay, too, to be there when they fail. Absolutely. You know, to be there when they go down the wrong road. And it's like, I'm not going to abandon you. You go that way. I'll be there when you're when it's over. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I was in a system as a preteen. I lived my entire uh, teenage years as a as an older youth. And so I completely relate. One of the things that impacted my experience the most was my relationship with my mentor. I had an informal mentor that I met when I went into my second, just after my second kinship placement. And that relationship I believe made all the difference of my experience in foster care as well as my experience in life. I think a lot of the positive outcomes that have resulted in my life were the result of engagement, intensive engagement with my mentor who was informal. He wasn't a part of the child welfare system um, and he didn't, and we didn't have a formal mentorship relationship. What role does volunteers and mentors play in improving the experience and outcomes for older youth? No, that's huge. And I think that involuntary or that voluntary piece, that informal is very, very important because 
I mean, our kids know somebody's getting a paycheck. They know, I mean, they know that this is part of their job. I mean, and that's okay. But then if there's somebody who just cares about the the youth, who, you know, is invested in that youth for no other reason, because they love that child. And then research bears that out. I mean, we know that when we look at research and what's been um, the 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 elements in young people's lives that have helped them attain a higher status and well-being, and that is mentors. Absolutely. So for for our listeners who who may want to be um, more involved in serving older youth, what what should their first step be? I would say, if you're an employer, if you hire people. I mean, really thinking about how can we get involved in hiring youth that are aging out of foster care. I would say that if you don't want to be a foster parent, to to be able to um, get with your church or get with someone else to sponsor foster children that are aging out of foster care. I mean, I think there's lots of, lots of ways that they can get involved. Um, donating money, donating resources. So we had a lot of funds come through the federal government through some CARES Act, and we were able to to pay for special things for foster kids that are aging out of foster care. And some of the things like blew me away, like foster children can't get um, braces. Medicaid for foster children doesn't pay for braces. So we had a, we had a youth who wanted to use their funds to get braces. Wow. We had a child who, or a youth who wanted to uh, go through driver's education, but he didn't have anybody who could ride with him to get the hours to be the actual driver. So he paid for somebody to be a driver. Financial is just huge. In our foundation, we have an older youth fund, and that is just to pay for special things for older youth. That straight away goes to um, youth who have a special need that no nothing else will pay for. And some of those barriers just make a huge difference if we can knock them down. So always encouraging that as well. Awesome. So the other question I have for you is, what is your most successful older youth program? Yeah, so I mean... It's kind of one program, but we have different components to the program. And I think the most successful is the education piece. So they have this case manager, right? So every youth has a case manager, but that very, that focus on education. And so that's kind of a hard sell for some of the kids. So really uh, standing by them, you know, sometimes they go to different schools, being in, in high school is rough. If you're in foster care, it's even rougher. So to really help um, all the things that we do to wrap around the education piece. You know, guidance counselors can only do so much, you know, helping them through all the just aspects of, of being a student, a high school student, of applying for college, of, you know, being their special programs for foster children in college to make sure that they're connected um, and to stick with it. I mean, that's the part. It just can be real easy just to, to say, I'm done with this. This is too hard. I think that's clearly been our biggest successes is with getting those kids and that's a giant focus getting them through high school getting them into college or this has been very amazing too is vocational not every kid needs to go to college not every that's not even absolutely it's just a lot of opportunity on the vocational side of things particularly on in with it with the with the technology oh absolutely so just that is a huge focus i think we do very very well with that awesome fantastic well congratulations on that success is there digital resources that you use to support the relationship between older youth and their foster parents? 
Well, so the one thing that we learned during COVID was for sure that some foster parents need a little bit of help with some of it. I mean, just catching up, like they had to, how do we get our kids online for school? How do we, you know, all the quarantine stuff. So that's really, I think, changed the dynamic of just how we do business. The youth are usually ahead of me for sure. And what they know tech- technologically, because sometimes the only way to communicate with you is just text them. So just really helping, I think, using teaching foster parents, how do you stay connected? How do you um Communicating with teams is very different than it ever has been (laughs) and how to do it. And so I think that's a big piece of what we've seen. If an older youth that's navigating the foster care system right now is listening, what would you say are the three most important steps that they should take in order to improve their experience and their outcomes within the foster care system? Yeah, no, I'd say the very first one is to speak up to use their voice. Um, I mean, I was just talking with the commissioner of DCS, uh, Terry Stigden, and she said one of the best parts of her month is when she gets to talk to older youth and hear what they have to say. Um, but I think the other piece of this, and this is a tougher one, and this is really um, trying to understand accountability and understand like what can they actually do for themselves? You know, what can they, again, make mistakes and that's fine and learn from them? I mean, I think that's a a big piece of it. Um, You know, they've been in the system oftentimes a very long time and they're pretty disempowered and they feel like, well, you didn't help me or, well, they didn't help me. This is an opportunity to help yourself and we're going to teach you how to do that. And you can't, absolutely 100% can. I think that's a big hurdle. I think the other piece of it is just take advantage of this. I mean, a lot of times, you know, they've been pushed around and pulled around and and this is a real opportunity to kind of get what they need out of the system and lead that you know all the time before it's just they kind of just you know they didn't have any say so now they do and so to really to really take advantage of that i think is important absolutely so there's a lot of changes facing the child welfare system right now which can be uh, confusing for new foster parents so of all the changes what do you believe new or prospective foster parents should focus on the most if they want to have the greatest impact on uh, the outcomes of uh, children that are in the system? Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question. We're seeing, we're seeing a big change. We're basically, we're seeing a sea change, as they call it, in child welfare. And it's been really interesting because I talked to a lot of people who worked in the field for a long time and they say the pendulum swings, the pendulum swings. And so my answer to that is there's federal money attached to this pendulum. <laughs> and I don't know if it's going to swing back because money is really, we, they've loosened up how federal funds can be used at the same level. And so that's major. <laughs> so the things Explain are- Explain what, what do you mean by that? Because that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit inside baseball. What, yeah. So how does the money work? And what does it mean that they've been loosening up the money at the state level? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So the big chunk of what funds child welfare in the States is what's called 4E dollars. And 4E is, it's a clause in the Social Security Act. And so it it gives state money through federal, but you have to do, you have to use it just like the federal government says. And it's really very regulated. It's paid for uh, a lot of things to do with foster care, but it has not paid for much to do with kinship care or family preservation, like keeping the bio family and the children together. And so it kind of means you think about it, the whole, the whole premise of this new um, legislation is what's least traumatic for the child. Uh. 
And so what's least traumatic for the child is they stay with their bio family. Again, even if it is not a very good situation, because we know it isn't. And so, so getting all the supports for the biological family so that they can keep the child safe, learn to get stabilized, usually the things that happen in biological families have to do with mental health, substance use disorder, and poverty. And so really getting the family stabilized. If you can't do that and keep the children safe, then the next least traumatic situation is to put them with kinship care. So families they know, relatives they know, and support the, that structure. If that doesn't work, then foster care. So foster care is really kind of the the most traumatic just because they don't know the families, you know, they don't. And so the federal government will pay for more of these keeping the family structure together than they have been able to do before. And so what we're going to see is that foster care is going to probably be less time intensive. So it's they're not there very long because they're going to try to move them back down to these lower, lower traumatic situations. And the other piece which I think is really interesting for foster parents is to, to be thinking about, because they're going to try to reunify the children, if at all possible, that's a goal with their biological family. So to, to have the foster parents also work with the biological family. Right. And that's, that's just a big old ask. And that is very scary. Mm. And, but they're the, the families that we have a lot of success with also will engage with the biological family. And so that's, that's a big piece of it. So really kind of, Fostering a family, you know, instead of fostering a it child. Sa- it sounds like fostering a community as well. Yes, and the villages, the- you know, it takes a village. And so really thinking about foster parents who are willing to do that. And I think that I know there are lots of foster families who do, but that's a shift. That's a big shift. So how do we prepare foster families for that? How do we equip them, train them, support them? And that's, I mean, that's the main thing with all foster foster parents is they need support. They need training. They need more support and some more support. That's right. And some more support. And so and that's, a shoulder, the, that's and a shoulder to lean on sometimes, right? That's right. And so, so yeah. So I think that's what we're we're going to see. And we're going to see it because the federal government is making us do this, and and it's good. It's different. It's and child welfare is like a giant ship, right. and it is turning, turning, right. turning. But it's going to turn quicker. Because there's going to be money. Some financial incentives attached to it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Villages. The Villages is a very unique organization. In preparation for this interview, I did my research. And actually, I had an opportunity about maybe a year and a half ago to really dig into the background um, of the Villages. And I, I was very, very impressed with just the early development and just the kind of leading edge work that the villages has been engaged in. I saw a lot of sort of startup initiatives that the villages was spearheading very, very early on, you know, older youth focus on families. For my listeners, my listeners probably are not familiar with the villages or licensed child placement agencies in general. Could you explain to us what type of organization the villages is and how that fits within the child welfare ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. So the Villages, we're a statewide social service agency that is child um, and family focused. And so we have a continuum of services. So I think that's really important and unique about the about the Villages. So on one end, we, have, we are the Prevent Child Abuse America chapter for the state of Indiana. So primary prevention, 
So that's like, if we could just prevent these things um, from happening, all the better. So we we have the prevention side of things. We have family preservation that keeps the children together. We have a program for kinship care. That's unique. So we have, and it's private partner paid for. So this is not government paid for. So this is basically grandparents raising grandchildren, aunts raising their nieces or nephews. These are family members. So no child, no child welfare involvement. They're just stepping up. And interestingly, there are almost sixty thousand children in the state of Indiana who are living with a relative that's not their parent. Oh wow! And really? So, yeah. So huge. I mean, this is just a big. So so really, um, supporting kinship care families, and almost all of us will think about. Oh yeah, I know this person who takes who who has their grandchild living with them or i know i mean it's just it's super common and there's no support there's no hardly any network of of help for them and then we have we have our uh, fo- their foster care programs so we that's a big that's the biggest chunk of the work that we do so we license foster care families support foster care fa- families we do it in a kind of a unique way because we also have a foundation that we can pay for things for foster families that the state doesn't pay for. And then we have our older youth services. So those are children who are aging out of foster care. We have about uh, 400 youth, mostly in Fort Wayne, South Bend, Terre Haute kind of area okay. that we support. And we excitingly have 38 kids right now in college of those awesome. kids that we support. Um, yeah, we have three college graduates and a one in graduate. Hold on a second. Let's give a round of applause for the children in the college program. That's right. So they are super, super important. We have, we have a adoption program for children in the foster care system. We're getting ready to expand. And that's a collaboration with the Department of Child Services and Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. So people think of Wendy's restaurant. So that is just a, a evidence-based practice to help older youth become adopted, sibling groups, and children with medical and behavioral health needs. And so, so that's kind of the hard to place into forever families. We also have a healthy families program, pretty sizable. That's our second biggest program. And that's a home visitation service for pregnant women and women with newborns. And it's a prevention of basically prevention of child abuse program. So it's to support those new parents and those families. So it's a full continuum. So we do it all, all across the state. Just, I mean, I, I have to say the people that work at the villages, I mean, they're, it's just like their first inclination when they see someone suffering is what can I do? Clearly, what is it that I can clearly. do? And That's oh my you, gosh. Come, you got such a sprawling array of services. That is, that is amazing. That's exactly what we need. We know that Families are the foundation of our economy, right? Like families are the foundation of our of our country. And so if our families are struggling and 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 the infrastructure for family is is suffering, then it's probably a leading indicator of, of where we're going as a community, as a nation, so on and so forth. So that the array of services that you're offering is really like an investment in the community, an investment oh in our in our society. Well so said. Kudos, kudos for that. And in terms of the the ecosystem, the the villages is a private organization, right? The state is 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 the government organization. The village is a private organization. Talk to me about that relationship. It's a contractual relationship, right? But is there some services that the villages offers to the community that does not involve the state at all? 
Yeah. So we have, so prevent, so our prevention of child abuse, they, we get some funds, actually, you know, those kids first license plates yes. with the little man prints. Yes. So that's the sales of those funds are prevent child abuse America. Uh, so that's really, that's really important. So I'm always like, get the, get the plate. That's right. If you're listening out there, get the plate. It helps. (laughs) It does. And our kinship care program is uh, mostly funded through private donations, through corporate uh, corporate partnerships. So we're always trying to to raise funds again to pay for the 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 fuller array that's needed. High quality full array services, and it's like a patchwork. And so that's the other piece of it is is and that's the other thing I can do pretty well is is piece things together. And so that's, I think, a really important aspect of how we do things because there's, there's like government paid good. And then there's like really awesome program. And the other thing is with government funding. So government funding is very much like, here's what you can do, like in a very tight box and you have to stay in that box. So we're only paying for what's in that box. And we're even going to come in and audit you. And if you're doing something outside that box, we're going to slap your hand and take some of that money away. That's just how it works. And so we know that highly regulated, highly restricted, highly, very targeted. Right. Okay. It's just never enough. And I would have to say the other piece of it is they're really slow moving. You know what I'm saying? Like social, social issues come about real fast. Right. That's right. And they change shape. Oh my gosh. All of a sudden no one can afford their rent. Right. That just happened. You know what I'm saying? Like the opiate crisis really within a year and a half, Wave. you know, really hits, you know, so, so the issue is, is the government, they're not quick, they're not flexible, they're not, they can't really. So the other piece of agencies like us is we, we're kind we're the harbinger. We know, oh, we're starting to see a trend here. We're seeing, we're seeing people getting evicted all of a sudden. Oh my gosh, we had an overdose death from opiates of a mom. What is happening? So we can pivot. And the only way we can pivot is if we have foundation funding and flexible funding that isn't, you have to stay in the box. And so then the other thing that we can do is we can help government see, and that's what we do. Hey, knock on the door of the state and DCS. Hey, here's what we're seeing. Here's what our families are facing. And this is really important too. And this is, I think, very important. Your voice, like the, the voices of the people who are affected by, you know, the, the older youth service, you know, the kids in the older youth service, foster families, having that authentic voice because they're the ones that are going to, te- they're the experts. They're going to tell you what's up. And so we have to listen. We have to pay attention. We have to communicate and advocate with the state. And they, the state generally wants to hear that. They do want to know. They understand they're not going to be able to pivot and they don't know what to do until you start to tell them. Right. So that's a, that partnership's really important. What's what's the history of the villages? What's the creation story? Yeah, so the villages is 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 a pretty young agency actually. So 1978. So that's the that's the date that I was in second grade. So I think about that when the villages started 1978, 40 some years ago. It's called the Villages of Indiana, and we were an offshoot of the Villages of Kansas. And so the Villages of Kansas came to Indiana, and there they had a program model. This is in Bedford, Indiana. So they just opened one group home and the whole model was this family group home. So there was a family that lived in the group home and that was the family models. And then that model went out of fashion because, you know, that congregate care, they really wanted family settings, um, like individual family settings. So then um, we started to do more foster care. And I think, um, and then, you know, the full array of services we have now. So over the 40 years, and this is, I think, really important, is that the villages has pivoted, 
has been able to say, what is it that we, what's, what is missing and what are the gaps in the community and how can we fill that? How do we, do we have the expertise to help with families who are struggling and children who are vulnerable? And so, so that's been over the 40 years of just this being innovative and really um, pivoting when we needed to and to meet the needs. And I think that's um, kind of a secret sauce of the villages really. Awesome. How often do you find or have you have you found that the, that you guys have had to um, adjust and kind of uh, change? Is that is that prompted by the environment? Yeah. So strategic, being strategic is huge in this business. So really, yes, looking at trends, looking at I mean, because the other piece of it, there's so limited resources. You know, if somebody else out there is doing a really good job at this. That's not our space. We don't need to be, you know, this is not a elbowing people out of the way business. This is how can we fill that gap? And so partnering with other agencies is really important. Um, like we do a lot of partnership with Children's Bureau, with other, other agencies out there. It's, it's just super important. So now we're entering our, our childhood space. We're going to go back to our imagination and reimagine foster care obviously there like you said with the federal funding there's a lot of uh, restrictions a lot of barriers and, and there's a lot of limitations to the way that you can utilize resources today but what i would like you to do is do this exercise with me where you eliminate all the barriers where you become all powerful and you have all the power in the in the child welfare space and you can change but the power can only be used to change one thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, pressure. So you only can change one thing. And so if you could reimagine foster care and wave a magic wand and change one thing that would improve outcomes for children and families in the system, what would you change and why? One thing. And I don't know how to change it. It's more of just a core philosophy. It really is the child first. You know, what is the best for the child? I mean, I think we, we make decisions. We make all kinds of decisions based on they're not good. And this family's not good enough. This isn't good enough. This isn't what is best for the child. And I think that that child-centered, it gets lost real fast. The child gets lost real fast. And it's shocking and understandable, though. I mean, I get all of the the reasons why, you know, we focus on the family or we focus on the foster family or whatever. It's just really center the child in the middle. And so I, I don't know like pragmatic steps how to do that, but it's just, I think it's a philosophy we just need to always remind ourselves of Absolutely. when we're making decisions. These are giant decisions that have huge implications for the children. Absolutely. They just seems like they seem like just okay. We're just gonna do that because that makes sense. You know, and that's right so now. and that's so interesting because uh, I have a background in in, in uh, the corporate world. Prior to jumping into child welfare, I spent a lot of time doing strategic uh, marketing in the corporate space, and that's one of the number one principles: is you got to center the the customer, center center the, the the folks that are the most important. And in this case, the, the child is the most important. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us for stopping past the cafe this morning. We really do appreciate um, you taking the time. I know you're extremely busy. You know, I got to attend 
one of your events this year and just that one event i was like man she's got everybody coming up to her she's got to talk to everybody she's got to have the speech ready so i know you're super busy so i really do appreciate you giving me this time and giving my listeners this time and and sharing uh some information with us thank you so much shannon Oh my gosh, thank you. You are just an inspiration in and of yourself and what an amazing service you're providing. And it's so important. Thank you, Taking. You're you're so welcome. Don't be a stranger. If there's any way that the show can be helpful to the initiatives of the villages or anything that you're working on, please don't hesitate to let me know. It'd be my pleasure to uh, work with you on that. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. That's our show.